This week in cyberspace. So what can we learn from Finland? Well, quite a lot it seems. It's the world's happiest country based on life expectancy, freedom to make choices, economic strength, generosity, social support from friends, and they know their coffee, consuming more beans per capita than any other country in the world. They also have 2 million saunas for a population of over 5 million, and nearly 75% of the country is forested. I love this. Brett mm. Solomon, you've just been talking to the Finns. <laughs> Are they as perfect as it seems? <laughs> I mean, look at that list. Isn't it amazing to think that they've got, you know, all that forest and all that coffee and all those saunas. No wonder they're so happy. It yeah. Makes, it makes sense. I mean, imagine one sauna for every two people. <laughs> <laughs> Snug and uh, quite um, well... Well, kind of cleansed, I guess. The skin, the sweat. <laughs> the pores. The pores. The best pores. <laughs> the best skin in the world. <laughs> but they've got skin in the game in human rights too, haven't they? I mean, they're kind of one of the leading countries. They, they do. As far as looking after their population and looking after and foreign... human rights generally and advocating on behalf of people. And their foreign policy, which is great. It's true. Like I have been speaking to the Finns. Um, in my role at Access Now, we do speak to a lot of governments. I mean, there's many, obviously, that we don't speak to and we we kind of you know advocating against but the Finns are one of those governments that is actually um conscious of the the consequences of technology and its impact on human rights and so um you know this the northern the Scandinavian countries have traditionally been very um proactive on human rights even before the internet obviously you know they've and the swedes they've stood up for human rights they've funded human rights organizations all around the world when the internet started to become you know so pervasive a thing a thing <laughs> um they recognized that the human rights framework had moved online so your right to freedom of expression or your right to an opinion or right to association has moved into the digital environment and so and so has finland and sweden and, and, and a number of other countries as well but you've been talking to them about a specific issue, which is this kind of policy schizophrenia or, <laughs> or um, what do we call it, impact schizophrenia. Yeah. Can you explain what that means? Because I think um, listeners will be interested in the two sides of the coin. We yeah. have the positives of the internet and um, you know the, that freedom of information, but also when it gets into the hands of dictators, it right. becomes a nightmare. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. That term policy schizophrenia, I think, is an interesting one because, um, you know, a lot of people, um, almost all of us are using the internet in some form. Um, but I don't think people realize there's actually a whole policy framework around the internet. So, you know, most governments, pretty much all governments have... Um, you know, a minister for communications who was responsible for the radio and the telephones, etc., is now responsible for the internet. Um, interestingly, many ministers of communications move on to become prime ministers and presidents, which is used to be like the foreign minister. It's now often the minister of communications. Um, but but so there's all these policies. There's like you know international bodies that are responsible for the names and numbers, the IP addresses, um, the the rules of war uh, online, like all of these. Frameworks are being developed, policy frameworks are being developed. I think, unfortunately, um, many things actually have both a positive and a negative consequence at the same time, or both even at the same time. <laughs> yeah, this is, is this schizophrenia you're talking yeah. about. It's like, 
it's good on one hand, bad on the other. Which direction do and we how, go? How do we shape policy? How do we shape policy around mm. it? So if you look, for example, at you know tech companies, you'll see that tech companies can be are the enabler of conflict. You know, they're in the enabler of incitement and violence that happens online, which translates to it being offline. And so, you know, many companies like Meta or Facebook or or Twitter have been accused of playing of not recognizing their role in creating war and creating genocide like for example in Myanmar as we've talked about before if we look at Iran for example as well there's you know major question marks about the role that the foreign tech companies are playing in in Iran and Ethiopia uh, too right and, and Ethiopia as well and so so there can be a really negative consequence and and but there can also be a positive consequence as well so for example in many countries um the internet is actually the buffer between the authoritarian state and the citizen in many countries you know the the newspapers and the televisions and the radio it's all controlled by the state so the internet is the only place which is free and as we've seen in many instances now, of course, governments are trying to limit that as well. So how do you create a policy environment that makes sure that you pull the positives out where, the, where you keep the openness of the internet, but you don't allow the openness of the internet to be a place of incitement for violence and genocide? Well, yeah, yeah. exactly. How do you do that? <laughs> I mean, I hate to throw it back, but when we see the problem, but what is the solution? Yeah. Is it regulations again around... Uh, how the internet is accessed. Yeah. Well, one of the things that you definitely want to make sure is that people do have access to the internet. I mean, at least having the choice to access the internet. About a third of the world's population is offline, is still offline. That means they have no access to, to the digital environment at all. Um, and so definitely one of the you know things that we've been encouraging is for investments in, um, in, in connectivity. Um, the flip side of that, just to play the sort of devil's advocate, is that often in many countries um, there's a deliberate and intentional switching off of the internet at certain moments. So, for example, we've seen we're seeing in Iran at the moment, the government is seeing that the internet as a threat, the place for open expression and opinion and political exchange is a threat. So they switch the internet off. So you know, at one point you want the internet to be available to everybody. Governments, many governments don't. Um, so, you know, back to the policy question, I think that um, what we always encourage is that there should be a human rights impact assessment. You know, I, I, I said this actually to the Finns is that um, you have to write policy expecting the worst. Right. I yeah. mean, and, 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 it's like it's like in Tibet. They say, you know, the Dalai Lama's in exile in uh, Dharamshala. Yeah. They always say, yeah, we hope for the best, but yeah, we, we prepare, prepare for, for the, the worst. worst. Yeah. Yeah. We said in unison, we could almost <laughs> <laughs> free Tibet. <laughs> we could almost do a chorus around that. And it's interesting that you mentioned Tibet because Tibet is, you know, within the sort of, you know, an autonomous region, but within really the control of the Chinese. And one of the first things that they've done is to set up the Great Firewall of China because what they want, they want China, they want to be able to control everything that's happening. One of the key things that um, Xi Jinping is just 
uh, as his like third term is commencing, um, is all powerful leader, uh, yeah, yeah, all powerful, dictator. all powerful control over the mm. internet and all powerful control over technology as well. It's actually the number one thing that's that's come out of that the conference um, is that they want to um, be and maintain their role as the superpower on tech. And when you're the superpower on tech, then you're also the superpower on control of the citizen. And, and, and that's sort of the battle that's happening. I think so there's a question about, um, you know, preparing for the worst in terms of your policy. I think doing the human impact rights assessments where you're like, okay, so what are the consequences of this policy? Like, um, you know, many of us use encrypt. I mean, the whole of much of the internet is encrypted in the sense that you can't have access to communications unless you have authority. Encrypted communications protects your privacy and your security. Governments like China, for instance, are wanting to break encryption because that's their policy setting. They want to break encryption in order to be able to access people's communications. Mm. But you say that really the impacts, the impacts um, are competing simultaneously in opposite directions and that the risks and attacks on human rights are much greater than the benefits. Okay, so this is... Um, <laughs> okay, <laughs> I, love <laughs> I love being quoted. Um, well, you know, traditionally, I think for the last, you know, 15, 15 or 20 years, when the internet really started to become a thing in all of our lives, um, <clears throat> over the first 15 years, it was very... There was a whole kind of tech utopia, you know, this idea that the, the technology was going to free us, the technology was going to connect us, the technology was going to, you know, limit misunderstandings, etc. Um, <clears throat> and so there was a, you know, flourishing of, of the Tibetan movement online, the flourishing of the green movement in Iran, the flourishing of, you know, democracy, democracy movements in Russia, etc. Um, and some people were warning that actually this internet is going to become a tool of repression. And, and so what I was saying at that, you know, that, that certainly, certainly, you know, my organization Access Now, um, we, we have come and I think I was sort of thinking this as I was writing it and now you're quoting it back at me, but I was saying that, that the internet has become um, more of an enemy than a friend certainly to, to, to at-risk populations. It, it feels like that, actually. It feels like we're at a tipping point, you know, that, that maybe we have a moment here where we can influence uh, how technology impacts us. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I always think of climate change as well. We've been talking about tipping points forever in the climate movement. Um, is it realistic yeah. to think that, well, that, that this tipping point is powerful? Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you raise the climate um, movement and the climate kind of crisis that we're in because for many years you know climate activists and scientists have said we've got until x point you know one and a half degrees um, temperature rise until such time as like everything starts to degrade everything starts to compound upon itself and yeah the ice caps have melted beyond repair impossible to refreeze them mm. exactly um so I was. I also wonder whether it, we're at a tipping point with technology. You know, like for example, so many new laws are being passed around the world, um, ostensibly to respond to fake news. You know, they're like, well, we need to have control over 
um, communication because fake news and, and disinformation is so problematic. And it's not to say that it isn't. It's a huge problem. It's probably one of the biggest reasons for the climate, uh, our our lack of commitment to responding to the climate crisis because there's all this like, you know, climate change is fake stuff. Um, but, and so in the technology world, um, there's these, these fake news laws that are being passed, but by many governments, they're not being passed in order to protect from disinformation because the government itself is probably the one that's committing the acts of disinfo. It's because they want to have control over the conversation. So once those laws are passed all around the world, in which they are being passed, how do you ever wind them back? Like, how do you ever give the citizen their, their space back? You know, if the, if, if the internet was designed to an extent as a town hall, as an open space, if it's now controlled and regulated in such a manner, um, you never repeal those laws in the same way as you never repeal national security laws because no government's going to get up there and say, we're going to, you know, you know, we're annulling this because it's just too politically... So they get these laws in place. And so we're having all of these controls over you know, conversation over fake news, over disinfo. As I said, not to say that it's not a problem. They are a problem. But governments are regulating and legislating in a way to control the, 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 the citizens. Point being is that um, that's a tipping point moment, right? If we can prevent those laws from being passed or if proper laws are being passed, then we will have a proper policy environment in which the internet can flourish and people's rights can flourish. But there is a lot of stuff happening right now, and there's a lot of technologies that are also like facial recognition we've discussed before, which are intersecting with other technologies like geolocation so that they can you know, identify your face and geolocate you, you know, based on your dot on the map um, you know, and, and identify exactly who you are. So point being is that um, this might be a tipping point, and that's why this idea about policy schizophrenia is so important. It's like, okay, we need to look at the worst case scenario. We need to identify what is right or wrong or could go right or wrong and then legislate and regulate accordingly. Did the Finns have any tips on uh, how to do this? You know what was interesting in the conversation with them is two responses, one from um, a disability rights um, advocate and another from an LGBT activist and I was like yeah it's only in Finland that you'd actually get like you know two really important stakeholder groups um, able to like you know sit around the table not only in Finland but you know in a sort of progressive country um, be at the table be at the be table able to input be able to input and I, and I do think that this issue of internet rights or internet freedom digital rights is intersectional now like it does actually overlap with you and your rights and your identity, whether it be as a woman or an LGBT activist or an Indigenous person or a person with disabilities or whatever it might be. And I think it's important for us when we talk about policy to make sure that those policy frameworks are in place, considering all the different stakeholders at the table. So what is the um, what is the medication for this uh, schizophrenia, <laughs> this uh, policy schizophrenia? Lithium, it's lithium isn't it? Lithium. Um, no. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean... Technically speaking. Yeah, well, there's, it's, that's a good point. It's a good question because often we think about, you know, internet um, frameworks in terms of public policy, but actually there's technical solutions as well, you know. Um, firewalls? Of, <laughs> firewalls. I mean, one of the things that we've talked about is, um, you know, is, is uh, internet shutdowns and, and, sh- and censorship. And so, you know, many people are using VPNs, like virtual private networks. They're using VPNs, changing their IP address to come from another country and then able to circumvent the Great Firewall of China or able to circumvent the shutdown. 
Um, you know, that's a workaround. Like, that's not necessarily a, po a tech policy setting. I do think that, um, you know, encryption, and I'm, which I mentioned before, is extremely important as a policy setting, a tech policy setting. Because if encryption is broken, like it's broken for everything, it's broken for your financial transactions as much as your communications. So I would say, you know, encryption is a good tech policy framework to put in, to keep in place. And many governments are trying to undermine it, including the Australian government. Um, oh dear, is there any kind of um, action we can, or pressure we can put on well, people? Well, we just had uh, last week um, Global Encryption Day <laughs> for all the geeks <laughs> really? the, the, the out there. Which day was it? Uh, it was October... Wednesday, some, yeah. Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> it was Global Encryption Day now. You okay, know. sorry, sorry. I'll, 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 get, I'll get my head across it um, soon. So, yeah, I yeah, mean, you, you, cool. can, you have a look, like people can Google around that and see there's lots of actions that people were taking on Global Encryption Day. That wasn't the day that Slim Dusty appeared on the Google uh, Doodle. I didn't was see it? What you was didn't that? See that? I think what that was last um, Monday. What was he doing? Oh, on the, oh, okay, I understand. You mean when you go to... To when Google, you Google, you to got search. the doodle. Yeah, it was Slim Dusty. Oh, it was Slim Dusty. Amazing. Celebrating what? Uh, Slim Dusty. Years. I don't what? know, just his contribution to Australian <laughs> country music. <laughs> Excellent. Very we might important. just play a track right now, Slim Dusty. Let's do it. <laughs> All righty, Brett Solomon, CEO of accessnow.org. Thank you so much for joining us for This Week, Week in, in Cyberspace. Rated number 71 on your Apple podcast. Yeah, that's what, that's the ranking that we got. <laughs> According to email. Yeah. yeah. Email Carlos. from Carlos. That's the listening. Yeah. Just like to tell you, number 71 in the Tech News Australia category. How Who marginal can you get? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for sharing your amazing you intel into this space. Bye. Bye. Bye.